you're listening to Tech Policy Grind, a show about tech law and policy and the stories of the folks making their way into the field. My name is Emery, and from the bottom of my heart, I want to thank you for joining us on this awesome adventure we've been on since launching the show last year. Our release schedule hasn't always been the tightest, and our audio quality hasn't always been the most polished, but you have stuck with us as we've covered everything from privacy to artificial intelligence to copyright to privacy. Okay, there's there has been a lot of privacy talk, but it has been a big year for privacy. Facebook and Cambridge Analytica the general data protection regulations, more Facebook. Unfortunately, Pinal couldn't join us today, but Joe and I are closing out this, the first season of Tech Policy Grind, with a bit of a meandering deep dive into the new California Consumer Protection Act of 2018, YouTube's COPPA problems, and a bit of a retrospective as we look back on almost a year of awesome conversations and forward to the next. So... We're going to be going on a bit of a hiatus for the next few months for the summer, but don't let that stop you from reaching out to us on Twitter at Tech Policy Grind and letting us know what you think of the show. We'd really love to hear your thoughts and especially any ideas for season two. With that, I'll sign off for the summer and bid you all adieu and best of luck staying cool. Enjoy this wonky privacy talk with Joe Jerome and myself, Emery Roan, on Tech Policy Grind. So, yeah, Joe, it's been, God, when did we first start doing the show? Has it been, I, I think we tried to have our first recording back in the 1st of October or something. Is that, does that sound about right to you? That does sound about right. I'm, you know, it's fast. I was trying to think, we initially were having conversations to do this in August with the hopes that we would get something started in a month and then things <laughs> kept getting delayed and delayed and delayed. What, our, our eyes were uh, bigger than our schedules, I guess, or our free time? <laughs> Right. Um, and then also just trying to dream up topics. It's sort of, I, you know, I think it's the toughest thing about doing a tech podcast is you either react to the news of the moment, um, which is constantly changing, but then that makes a huge time crunch to put things out while they're relevant. Or you try and just A, find themes or interested people willing to talk about anything, but it can be pretty far outside your wheelhouse. So then mm-hmm. you have to educate yourself on stuff. Um when you are busy doing your own work. Yeah, it has been a, uh, a humbling experience. You know, I think that when you said that, though, it, it totally just brought me right back to like professional world life. And that is, that's just the, the struggle with working in privacy today is I feel like you're constantly either reacting to things that are like all the travesties that are happening day in and day out, um, or you're trying to, you know, look ahead and then you are missing the things that are happening day in day out because it's just constant (laughs) it's it's frankly exhausting um so i know (laughs) you and i are both like privacy people and um i think you know the, the lesson i take away from the past six months is that a there's just so much going on in privacy and data protection um but then you know talking to some of our guests and also just you know keeping tabs on the news there's so much other stuff going yeah. on that may have a bigger frankly impact on society and and my life um that it gets hard to then shift back into oh i'm gonna i'm gonna read and critique a privacy policy today <laughs> Yeah, and yet, you know, the more I get into privacy, the more you feel like all those other major issues are also touched by the privacy problem. Um, but maybe that's just because I'm too much in the weeds. And you know, I think we're all too much in the weeds. Uh, we hosted, and I, I think we're going to be talking about this later before we wrap up, uh, we hosted a call about um, the California privacy law, AB 375, this week. And there were some other people on the call who afterwards were like, you know, 
I paid attention to the first half hour, and then frankly, I didn't have a clue what any of you were talking about. And I was just sort of, and I, I took that partially as well. Wow, should I be insulted by that? But no, I'm sort of glad that our call got so in the weeds and so technical that it was useful to just the like the small group of people who are working on this. Like, it's so much better to at least be te- so technical that you're in the weeds rather than so you know sausage making or political or like right, just right. Other, all the other things that can derail a, a, a otherwise productive conference call. <laughs> so, all right. So I think we're here to wrap up yeah. uh, a season of, of, of tech policy grind. You have detailed or long history working on podcasts. What was your takeaway from our 14 or so episodes of this compared to your time on uh, This Week in Law? Well, I mean, best decision of the year was absolutely doing this um, not live. I, I love the ability to edit podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> All, my dear listeners, you will never know any of the stupid things I say because I edit this show and I make sure I sound smart, as smart as possible. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, it was, you know, I got to say, actually, this was uh, a show that, you know, we, I think, flew by the seat of our pants as far as planning and executing and then recording. But... I think that the format has really come into its own. I'd love to continue doing this next year um, or after the summer, but you know, the I, I think that there is a place for this show, and I think that what this show is doing is rather unique. Um, you know, bringing on early career professionals to talk about the way they're getting into the field, um, and interspersing that with sort of in the weedsy tech policy law discussions. Uh, I, I've had an absolute blast. Um, but definitely, definitely we've learned, you know, learned some lessons that hopefully we will take into next year. Um, as you are probably aware, dear listeners, this has, uh, this episode has missed the deadline a few times on our uh, scheduled release date. We're going to try to be stricter about that next year. But, uh, as Joe was alluding to earlier, this past month has just been absolutely insane for privacy and tech law in general. And Pinal has been slammed as well. What about you, Joe? Any any lessons that you've learned from the past months? <laughs> you know, um, it, it's I think it's sort of the formalities of of doing panels in DC where you you try and let people talk. But I actually think the best episodes that we did were were I think conversations, mm-hmm. um, and yeah. that's that's actually surprisingly hard to do in a podcast form. I mean, A, you know, some people don't have video enabled, so you can't read people's eyes, you can't read the room. Um, you don't want to interrupt people who are giving really interesting thoughts, but at the same time, they're they're engaging in quasi-monologues. Um, so that's been interesting. I mean, in terms of just skill set development, it's been, um, I think, good of, for me to learn a little bit of how to interrupt people, hopefully not too much, hopefully no, not or inappropriate. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's been a lot of fun. And I agree with you that there, there's room for tech people to be sharing their stories. I mean, there's endless numbers of shows out there or podcasts that will tell you about, oh God, more about blockchain or IoT. Uh, but it's really rare to understand. And, and frankly, I think what's really interesting about the Internet Law and Policy Foundry, certainly the guests we've had, but I know there's other fellows out there, uh, have really interesting backgrounds. Yeah. Um, you know, it's been nice that that not everybody on the show has been a lawyer. Um, perhaps too many of them have been, but uh, that's, maybe that's just because lawyers are comfortable ranting and raving more often <laughs> than other folks. A lawyer comfortable talking for hours? Yeah, right. What? Shock. <laughs> the other thing to keep in mind is I think you nail, you hit the nail on the head that this is – 
it, it is such a great opportunity to expand your skill set. Uh, for any listeners um, that have any kind of inclination to be speaking in public, or really, I think it benefits honestly any profession that you're in, but the ability to just speak comfortably and speak competently about a subject um, is invaluable. And if you want really great practice or a really uh, uncomfortable view into all of your um, idiosyncrasies and speech imperfections, record and edit a podcast with yourself in it. Um, and, and and we have to listen to this. Stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, several you, times. You've done the lion's <laughs> share of editing, but I've edited a few myself. And, you know, it's it's f- frankly fantastic that you can edit yourself a little bit to sound better, get rid of the c- totally obvious ums and uhs and likes. Uh, but at the at the other time, at the other on the other hand, you really do just sort of listen and learn a lot about how you speak and ask questions. I mean, frankly, I I think we were always sort of challenged by this, where we'd come up with, well, let's ask some simple questions to folks. Um, but if you know, if it's if the if the the podcast or the conversation's going really well, you're not just asking questions. You're you're sort of framing what you're interested in saying. And I've always sort of had a hard time doing that. I realize after saying a bunch of words that I haven't really said anything at all and <laughs> what's my question. Um, yeah, and it's yeah. nice to have that laid bare in a podcast for all eternity. Oh, absolutely. The the number, the sheer number of ums, uhs, and likes uh, has definitely gone down. I'll, I'll say that absolutely. You know, as uh, recording, you know, or editing our recordings, the idiosyncrasies and the the uh, speech imperfections that we were talking about that you know you get better at them when you when you have to hear how many ums and uhs you say every time uh it it creates a little monkey on your shoulder that's just you know <laughs> don't do that <laughs> so right and you hear yourself saying it which is which is terrible oh, it's it's only slightly better than seeing yourself saying it only slightly mm. better um but yeah it's it's an awful experience but <laughs> i recommend everyone do it at least once uh, it's, it's right, <laughs> and, and that's and that's our sales pitch that uh, you all should join us next season. Uh, we'll try and reach out and be more proactive about that. Yeah, um, we, we really would love to have more guests next show. We're going to try to or next season. I think we're going to try to expand outside of the foundry. So we've had a couple people that have reached out uh, this year and have asked to uh, come on the show as interview guests um, that haven't quite worked out just because of timing. But we're going to work super hard next year and really try to open up the ranks uh, of guests to more folks and hopefully more folks that you'll find interesting. But how about we talk about uh, what's changed in the past six months? I mean, you're still at CDT. Uh, I think that I had officially started an internship at Privacy Rights Clearinghouse on our first episode, or maybe I hadn't even done that. I think that I had I remember we were riffing about me getting my bar results back. So it feels like an eternity ago before the great joblessness period. Um, but are you, do you find yourself now in a position of giving people unsolicited bar examination advice? I mean, we're in another cycle. Um, <laughs> people are spending their summer stressing out for the bar. And the thing about the bar, I mean, first of all, my wife is taking the bar right now. So, yes, I'm giving tons of unsolicited <laughs> bar advice. It's, uh, it, it sucks. Um, no. Okay. <laughs> I draw the line. Everyone, everyone thinks I'm insane. I loved studying for the bar. I loved taking the bar. I mean, I, I don't, I feel like I don't even need to respond to that, Joe. You, <laughs> you opened it up. Everyone says you're insane because that is insane. The bar is a terrible, hazing, miserable process. 
<laughs> Change my Lots view. Of, but that's that's a lot of life. <laughs> yeah. Look here. Here's my advice. To any, and I look. It's 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 obviously a serious exam. People put a lot of their you know time, money, uh, energy, self worth into it. But studying for the bar exam should you should treat that like a job. Yeah. Eight hours a day, and then you go home and find your inner calm. Um, instead, you have people just. I think pulling their hair out uh, over things they can't control. You also don't need to know everything. You just need to know some yeah. of something. It is a test of uh, minimum competence was my There you go. like my ringing uh, or my mantra the whole time I was preparing. Minimum competence. <laughs> And I always found, certainly while taking the exam and for the week afterwards, it was the one time in my life where I actually felt like I had a little bit of grasp of what it means to be a lawyer and, <laughs> and all the different elements of being a lawyer. Yeah, but uh, I mean, you know, that being said, it's <laughs> that's what's so frustrating about it is that I know, even at that point, and I know exactly the point you're talking about where like you're just living, breathing MBEs and, you know, you could write essays in your sleep um, and you feel like you've got a grasp on the material. But then you stop and you think about, wait a minute, that – the kind of law that I'm interested in is not at all is not at all tested here. And in fact, this whole period I've been, you know, cramming my brain with torts and crim law. Uh, I've let all my privacy knowledge sort of dribble out of my ear canal and I'm going to have to (laughs) reacquaint myself with, you know, everything that's happening in the world of privacy and copyright next, you know, in a few months. Um, Yeah. And I, and for our non-legal listeners, I, I think it's also, I think it's fascinating how little technology infuses into what's taught in the law and actually given on the bar exam. Um, which at least shifts us, I think, a little bit back on the topic. <laughs> Do we want to talk about AB 375 at this point? I feel like it's probably a good time to segue it's my entire into, some, life. Yeah, into some privacy discussions. I don't know how involved y'all, you have been in AB 375, the California Consumer Privacy Act of 2018, also at one point called the Common Sense Privacy Act of 2018. Uh, but it's been, as you can imagine, at Privacy Rights Clearinghouse here in Southern well, California, um, basically top of the, uh, list of just, you know, well, should we tell, pe- <laughs> should we tell people what this thing is and you should feel, I I'll offer to do it and you feel free to interrupt me if I'm not giving an accurate perspective or if I'm getting too political. <laughs> all right. All right. Sure. Go ahead. So the way I've been trying to describe it is. AB 375, the California Consumer Privacy Act of 2018, was a last-minute legislative I, – I, frankly, I've never seen legislation passed so quickly. It mm-hmm. was revealed to the public um, on a Friday and passed the next Thursday, so under a week. Uh, it was um, a legislative response to the similarly titled California Consumer Privacy Act of two- 2018, which was a ballot initiative right. uh, that would and put forth all the, the all the worms. <laughs> yes, uh, this ballot initiative was put forward by Alistair McTaggart, who is a San Francisco real estate developer who had a conversation with a Google engineer and became really concerned about his privacy, and so he threw a bunch of money into this ballot initiative, um, and you know, frankly, if if people are, we might want to include this in the show notes, but uh, Kashmir Hill on Gizmodo did a really good deep dive into the, the politics and history of this thing. Um, but I, I don't know where you are, Emery, but the, this ballot initiative first came onto, well, frankly, got on our radar when we started the show. Um, we yeah, first saw it yeah, last fall. Yeah, it, it uh, really has been winding around for that long. It, it's 
it, it feels like on the one hand, yeah, this AB 375 came out of nowhere. But for the folks that have been up on this ballot initiative, it's just been like well, a, an undying, endless source of uh, meetings and discussions. I, I totally agreed. And I think a lot of people, because it was a ballot initiative and you basically – ballot initiatives in California are, I think, worth investigating yeah, by well, their let's, own. The, let's the rewind. Process is let's crazy. pause here and talk about the ballot initiative because I think that's also sort of a bizarre – like legislative process that not many people are aware of. So California, I I think that a lot of the uh, opposition to AB 375 or the, the, um, you know, the the anger about it for some folks um, just is really directed at the ballot initiative process. The fact is that California has this kind of bizarre, maybe um, arguably undemocratic, arguably oligarchical uh, (laughs) legislative process where essentially, um, you know, anyone, the the way it's framed is that any Californian can get something put on the, on the ballot in November. um, If they uh, write a piece of legislation and get enough signatures um, on a petition, and that will then go directly to the ballot and be voted on. Um, I think the number of signatures right now is maybe 300,000 or so. But regardless right. of the specifics, um, Alistair McTaggart was able to uh, uh, secure uh, the requisite number of signatures um, on this piece of le- this you know ballot initiative legislation that he wrote, the California Consumer Privacy Act, um, and it was going to be on the ballot in November. Um, and yeah, the AB three seventy five was sort of a last minute legislative compromise, I guess you could call it. Um, to so what I think what I think is fascinating here is that uh, and I, I actually I think privacy advocates, including myself, are a little bit to blame. No one I think took this ballot initiative seriously until Facebook and the giant hubbub over Cambridge Analytica. That yeah. really supercharged what this thing was. Um, and I mean, it's the perfect storm, right? It's, it's that, but it's right. also GDPR. I, I don't think you can it, it, ignore well, that. Can't, we cannot forget the general data protection yeah. regulation in this. <laughs> but I think what's fascinating is at the end of the day, so, you know, I think usually the way legislative sausage is made is you obviously have legislators. On one hand, you also have, you, then you have consumer groups, civil society, privacy advocates pushing for their proposal, and then industry and their trade associations trying to do something else. Here, you really had Alistair McTaggart was just this guy who had a mission, and the only negotiations were with him. So, yeah. well, why is that? All right, I didn't do a great job of basically explaining why that occurs though. So with the ballot initiative process, once something is put on the ballot, once you reach the number of signatures required, it goes on the ballot. But (laughs) here's the part where California kind of um, creates uh, a a bad situation, (laughs) arguably. Um, And that is that the after a uh, ballot initiative gets on the ballot or reaches the number of signatures, the only way it can be amended or pulled is if the person that uh, the proponent the person that uh, submitted it or what is the right word not submit but um yeah i guess the person that submitted the ballot initiative the proponent is allowed to pull the ballot initiative and only that person and so right. you can see the situation where if you've got you know enough money to make enough you know enough public waves you can basically get enough signatures on a ballot initiative and then 
essentially have all the leverage where the only way that that ballot initiative can get pulled is if you personally decide to pull it. Now, mm-hmm. um, in the deadline for the decision to either pull the ballot initiative or leave it on the ballot for November uh, was July 28th uh, or sorry, June 28th. Um, a Thursday. This past Thursday. And so that created the situation where in a lot of ways this ballot initiative was um, uh, more radical than or at least more restrictive on industry than what we eventually saw in AB 375. And so rather than – Well, potenti- well, well okay, well, okay. You're right. You're right. I, I, so I don't want to oversimplify I, this. but the ba- <laughs> It's interesting. The ballot initiative for people who – is really lengthy, very detailed – but it it functionally operates as a as a right to know and then a right to say no about quote selling of personal information. That's uh, all it yeah. does. Yeah. Um, yeah. The the actual final law has some GDPR type components, but I think what we're also missing is this ballot initiative had two other elements in it that I think scared both companies and frankly the California state house um private one, right of action it has a had a private right of action and beyond that not only could is it hard to uh, amend the initiative once it gets certified yeah. um the actual initiative basically would have locked that into law it had a provision and i i frankly Emory, you need to explain how california does this where any further amendment by the by legislators was basically a supermajority that had to be consistent with the intent of the initiative yeah that's that's um, part so of the ballot words, initiative process i it's it's just so bizarre like the ballot initiative is and this also gets like way above my head frankly um but yeah the, the ballot initiative is really really difficult to amend and so that was one of the reasons why a whole host of advocacy organizations weren't throwing their support behind it mm-hmm. anyway everybody came to a deal um and somehow passed a law in under a week that I think is fundamentally reshapes how we discuss consumer privacy in the United States. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think it, I, I don't see how any reading of that couldn't come to that same conclusion. Um, it essentially what the ballot initiative or what uh, AB three seventy five does is that it um, first of all it doesn't cover. You know, I think it's important to remember that it's not affecting every single California company that holds personal information of consumers. Um, so it's not – I mean some people – a lot of people are saying this is California's GDPR and it's really not California's GDPR. No, it doesn't not. go nearly as far as the GDPR um, and it really shouldn't be framed that way um, because it doesn't affect every single business. It only affects businesses that receive more than – or that have more than $25 million gross revenue per year that – sell the personal information of more than 50,000 consumers per year or that derive more than 50% of their uh, yearly income through or gross revenue through uh, the sale of personal information. But uh, for those businesses that are covered, um, yeah, a, a consumer has a right to know what information that business has collected about them. You're able to uh, request that information be deleted or provided to you in a way that lets you take it to another service. You're a, you have the right to know. Uh, you're able to request that the uh, business tell you what categories of third parties uh, your information is being sold to. Um, and you're able to opt out of the sale of your information to third parties. And there is a requirement on businesses to place a button on their homepage that says, do not sell my personal information that will opt you out of it. And the, uh, the bill allows for additional third parties to sort of opt you out of that uh, or facilitate that opt out process. So I think you can expect to see some uh, cottage industries pop up around sort of making that process easier. Um, 
And then some of the more controversial sides of it is that uh, the private right of action that was included in the ballot initiative is extremely weakened in AB 375, um, where in the ballot initiative, essentially any violation of any part of the act gave rise to a private right of action that an individual consumer could sue on. Under AB 375, you only have a private right of action uh, in the case of security breaches. Um, So when a business has experienced a data breach um, and your information has been exposed and then disclosed or transmitted or sent to a third party, um, and you can show that that entity did not implement reasonable security measures to secure and, your data. Well, yeah, and okay, that's that. You you lost me. That's a giant laundry list of yeah, stuff. Yeah, exactly. In general, the, pri- the private think, right of action is generally just totally gutted. I think. I think right. it's fair to and say. And w- we've missed episodes where, well, we've had episodes on this on this very program right, where we've discussed what constitutes reasonable data security. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and well, we've since, tried to discuss it, and I think yes, that- <laughs> and and since those episodes, right, there's been decisions that have come down in the LabMD case that have, I think, narrowed what reasonable security even really means. Um, so functionally, I don't know. How, well, well. so I guess I'd be interested to know what your take is. I, I imagine you think that the on, a, on the whole, this is an improvement. But I actually, so the, even though there is a limited private right of action, I think companies will tell you that you're still going to have those, those evil plaintiffs firms oh, yeah. um, filing actions all over the place, and they're still going to Companies are end up having to burn time and money on you know discovery requests to determine what the hell is a reasonable data practice. I mean, I, I for one am completely shocked and surprised that any business would uh, you know use the excuse so that uh, the regulation is going to cause more <laughs> more hardship. <laughs> that, that I mean, I, I think that's a really original and totally unique. I've never heard that before, but. Um, I, I mean, yeah, I think that net positive. I think this moves the needle forward. I think that this, you know, it at the end of the day, it confers rights to Californians that they simply did not have before. This is a compromise that is, I think, moving the needle forward and conferring rights that we don't have and is advancing the privacy discussion, but it's definitely not perfect. The process is super weird and not awesome. Um, And there are ambiguities in the text. I don't think that the act as written is the most clearly written language of any legislation I've ever seen. No. and, you know, it doesn't take into effect until 2020. And so the next two years are going to be a real battleground at the attorney general between industry and advocacy organizations trying to make sure that the regulations that come out are actually strong and that the protections in the act aren't further weakened. Um, right. But yeah, it's exciting, right? Like, like it or not, I, I, the complaint has been levied against this over and over again that this is undemocratic and it's ridiculous that California passed this in a week and, you know, what this this is, you know, the wrong way of advancing privacy in the country. And it's like, well, well, what's the right way? Yeah. First of all, what's the right way? First of all, what's the friggin' right way? Because if we were looking at it, our, uh, you know, cards on the table, legislative strategy at Privacy Rights Clearinghouse this year, we were going to consider it a victory if we were going to if we would be able to expand the data breach notification statute to include <laughs> paper records like that was going to be our like pop up in the champagne. <laughs> We've got paper records, including the data breach statute. like so first of all, that, you know, right, right. What is and the right I'm, way? <laughs> I'm very sympathetic. So I'm very sympathetic to industry's notion that this this AB 375 is a mess. Um, it is. I also wanted to, you know, I also, this is a larger conversation, but I, I would throw to you the notion that it's going to give Californians more rights. That's technically true. Um, the question always ends up being who's going to exercise those rights. Yeah. Uh, no, that, that bigger is, picture. Yeah, totally. I think privacy needs to shift from, oh man, you can get information dumps to actually sort of 
putting limits and prohibitions on companies. Yeah. Um, I mean, we need to follow the EU model. I mean, we need to totally reframe personal information around personal data, you know? It shouldn't be personally identifiable information. It should be personal data. (laughs) So what I think, and again, this goes back to some of the, well, you had industry saying that the ballot initiative was anti-democratic, but I think industry in general, not all, certainly not all, but a number um, have been just very, they've put up opposition to privacy legislation. And I keep telling these folks that you keep doing that, you're losing the war. Um, The rest of the world is just sort of going in a different way. And the United States has, so I always think I'm coming back, I'm sort of rambling here, but you know, I don't think AB 375 should be considered anything close to the the GDPR. It doesn't even meet the, even in the things that it's, it's, taking from the GDPR doesn't even get you anywhere close to that type no. of stuff. But, um, you know, I think it sends a powerful message that th- this approach that the U.S. has had where we're just not going to do anything isn't going to work. Now, totally. I'm also cognizant of the fact that we still have sectoral laws. and I don't know how you harmonize all of this stuff. Um, but I, I guess it's – I think this is a message, no matter what, that the the constant industry refrain that any type of regulation is going to harm innovation um, is tired. Yeah. Um, let's move past totally. that. Totally. You know, this is totally anecdotal and also kind of rambling, but, you know, we were at a KnowledgeNet, an IAPP KnowledgeNet meeting recently and talking to like the IAPP, like the, the folks on the privacy compliance side of things, not the advocacy side, but like the folks that are in privacy compliance, the ones that we spoke with about the you know ballot initiative or AB 375, we're all pretty like, yeah, I mean, it, it basically just follows FIPS and it's not, you know, it's not revolutionary. And especially if you're already following GDPR, it's not going to cause the sky right. to fall. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the, the it is always the argument is always that any regulation is too much regulation. But I, I really think that if you actually look at you know, what this act does, what I think 99% of consumers would agree, oh, that sounds actually kind of reasonable. Like, I should right. be able to know what information a business has collected about me. I probably should be able to opt out of the sale of that information, right? And yeah, and you know, certainly, I, I don't know if a uh, opt out of my sale of personal information button on the Google homepage makes a whole lot of yeah. difference. <laughs> but you know, I think this does put new obligations on companies. Well, let's go back like to Equifax or the data brokers out there that. That we have just refused as a country yeah. to actually grapple with. Yeah, um, totally. there is. I don't want to. It's not a, certainly not a black market data market, um, but there is sort of this universe of data sales and transfers that are going out there that people just don't understand. It's not a black market, but it is totally intentionally completely opaque. Yes, I mean, do we want to? I guess there's. I, it, I am singing this act's praises, but I think that there is a really great discussion to be had around the shortcomings of the act. It feels, yes. first of all, super weird and uncomfortable and like un- like surprising to be, um, you know, coming down on this act so diametrically opposed to uh, the viewpoints of other advocacy organizations that I really respect, like the ACLU. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, listeners, the ACLU uh, gave a really stinging uh, lambasting of the act is not going nearly far enough um, in their public statement. One of the things that um, ACLU pointed out, I mean, first of all, they they railed against the limited private right of action, which I think is totally justified. We we would really like to see that expanded, whether or not that would have been politically feasible is another story. But they also, um, they and other organizations are concerned about the idea that um, this act codifies a pay for privacy scheme. 
Yes, that's something we hadn't discussed. Yeah, so one of the um, – definitely, no, not one of – definitely the most controversial element of the entire act is that it includes um, language that uh, the, the intent is to prohibit – a sort of pay-for-privacy scheme. And for listeners, our pay-for-privacy is the sort of dystopic scenario that um, I think that we're barreling towards where uh, privacy is essentially a commodity for the rich um, and right. that uh, you're just going to have an underclass of citizens that just don't, do not have access to privacy because it's a paid-for uh, element and the free services are all privacy-invasive. And so, I mean, first of all, obviously – Anyone that's in the privacy advocacy world is super concerned about pay for privacy as a scenario. You know, I think that everyone at Privacy Rights Clearinghouse thinks that this is probably inevitable if we don't have some sort of protections in place around it. Um, and this act includes language that says that, uh, you know, a consumer has the right not to be discriminated against for well, exercising their privacy rights. As the the Senate Judiciary Committee, their their report on the bill actually sort of suggests so the bill is in tension with itself. It's simultaneously suggesting that you should you should non-discriminate, but then permits it in a variety yeah, of scenarios so, that are so entirely he, unclear. Yeah, so it is unclear. Well, well the bill says that you, it prohibits it, but then it also um, acknowledges that I th- I think I mean this is where I would really like to have a an awesome constitutional law expert on here. But I mean, from my understanding is that a straight prohibition on any kind of price, you know, quote unquote discrimination or like price differential around privacy. I, I think that would be unconstitutional um, for failure to, for, you know, preventing the ability of people to enter into contracts with each other. But I mean, regardless, you know, whether or not it would be constitutionally or unconstitutional, I think is undeniably politically untenable that you could just have an act that straight up prohibits any kind of, uh, you know, contract where privacy is a component in the discussion around price. Um, because I, I'm as, I'm a privacy advocate, I'm a privacy maximalist, but like we, we, that just, the, there will be people that will want to make that exchange of, yes. you know, cheaper services that they're that they need for the exchange of their private information that will be a rational decision that they will make and we shouldn't be so paternalistic that we say that they're not allowed to do that um so 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 i well i think we have to deal with larger ethical considerations so you if you talk to straight up consumer advocates or you know disability advocates they'll say you know these types of things are totally good. If people can't, if people can't get cheaper products, um, then what's what's the point of fighting over who controls data? Yeah. When at the bottom line, if, if you're under resourced or frankly poor, like you just need to eat. Um, and I always come back to things like you know customer loyalty cards, um, grocery store loyalty cards. Yeah. People need to have cheap milk, and if we can't find a way to facilitate that, we have larger problems on our hands. That said, when you're at a grocery store um, signing up for a loyalty card and if you think about how you know differential pricing works long term you can imagine that that becomes raises lots of really problematic issues where certain people are being peddled certain products totally. and then of course the system currently works where that information that that program isn't being run by the grocery store it's being run by some you know data conglomerate behind the scenes that nobody's yep. ever heard of or amazon if you shop at whole foods <laughs> or amazon and, and I, I guess i you know 
large large picture here, I think this entire issue, the initiative, this law, highlights how difficult it is to actually write privacy legislation. Um, We spend all of our times talking about high-level principles, best practices, codes of conduct. And then when it comes to the nuts and bolts of trying to write something, it gets really hard. Um, Or we default to some sort of adding additional just it's more transparency and opt-ins opt-outs yeah uh, as because if that's really the tr- yeah as if first of all you have yeah. the choice in the matter or that you know more transparency is going to make that choice suddenly a real choice you know but we i think we we do that because it's very hard to to deal with and confront these types of issues and i take your yeah. point that maybe this really can only be settled through litigation um you know from our perspective uh, i'm saying ours if i'm representing the center for democracy and technology maybe this is my personal perspective um, but this sort of comes back to the need for I think we hear over and over again um, from people inside industry, but also outside, that when it comes to technology and privacy and all of this stuff, you need both, I think, a degree of consistency, but also flexibility. And law has a hard time doing that. Mm. Um, And I think long term, what this really calls for is, you know, if not private rights of action, because then that makes us deal with figuring out what constitutes harm, but... You know, I mean, rulemaking authority. At some point, we will really need to nail down what a harm is. Well, <laughs> you didn't you didn't want to talk about this on the show today, but I, I think there's interesting. I think there's an interesting path forward if you look at what the Supreme Court did in in uh, U.S. v. Carpenter, um, where you certainly you're starting to see a, a certainly majority of the court recognize uh, just. There's something different about technology, um, yeah. and I'd also point everyone to to Gorsuch's opinion, which, even though it's a dissent, is functionally a concurrence where he's talking about um, property ownership and data, which I know tends to be a really contentious issue. Um, but he's trying to, I think, sort of split the proverbial baby by saying <laughs> that you know people can, there can be people can have ownership interests in things that that are conveyed to other people. Um, you know, you don't. It's not all mine and all yours it can be part mine and part yours and i think that 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 thinking really comes into play with um data flows um of course that's just in the you know government context of surveillance and and law enforcement um but when we act as if commercial privacy is completely divorced from that Mm -hmm. um we have our own problems and then i sort of just point at the the eu general data protection regulation as a a catch-all that gets everybody of course, it has its own problems. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it has its own problems, but I don't think the sky is falling like so many people said it would. Um. <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, I, I'd love your take on this. Um, I Companies are constantly – so I think where there's a really interesting point of contention here and uh, was in 2013 when the Federal Trade Commission changed the rules on the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. Mm-hmm. Um, this bill actually sort of extends that some of that to oh, yeah. kids age 16 or above. Yeah, this uh, does COPPA sort of have a goes weird to, COPPA right. element to it. <laughs> but – but COPPA is interesting because, A, if you're a company that deals with COPPA, you're good to go on GDPR. Um, at least that's what I've heard. And, um, hmm. y- you know, I would argue – I remember five years ago companies saying, well, the, if, if these rules go into effect, it's going to be the end of, you know, children's entertainment online. Um, and I, I don't think that's the case. I don't think the sky is falling there either. No, I um, think that is but, it common sense, though, that it has a complaint against Google's YouTube for COPPA violations. So – I mean, maybe yeah. it might might be the case that uh, children's entertainment is just uh, on YouTube, at least, is existing um, in uh, violation of COPPA. But yeah, I mean, I think that 
I mean, again, you know, we should have found somebody to come on and talk about that because I, I thought so that was a. Re- I, it yeah. was a. It was a very interesting piece. It, it is an interesting piece of litigation. A because you know you don't. Well, I guess they file. It's interesting. People f- keep filing complaints around COPPA to the FTC. COPPA doesn't have a private right of action, but in California, you're cer- certainly seeing litigation that tries to like bootstrap violations of COPPA onto uh, you know. You know, tort violations or California constitutional law violations. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I think is interesting, I think I'm torn because I read that and I, I sort of am convinced that yeah, there there was a cop of violation here. But at the same time, what do you want to do? Um, do you want to shut down these sort of family friendly zones that Google was trying to curate on the grounds that they, you know, they were trying to do some content moderation, but not some straight privacy moderation? I don't know. I don't know how you resolve those tensions. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know either. Um, That was my reading of it was just like, yeah, I think that there is actually, I mean, my reading was like, yeah, I think that YouTube might've dropped the ball here with their COPPA compliance on YouTube. What do you want? But yeah, it's, it's, I mean, in order for them, essentially the complaint, if I understand it correctly and feel free to correct me on this one, Joe, is that look, Google or YouTube started this platform called YouTube kids and on YouTube kids, they are serving only YouTube child, content, like content designed for children, um, which means... In compliance with COPPA. In compliance with COPPA, which means that, yeah, so they, whenever a student, a child goes on there, they have to get permission from their parents, etc. There's a whole process for that, um, which means that though YouTube has, knows the difference between a, between content that is directed towards children and content that is not directed towards children. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that that children directed content is not only on YouTube kids, but is also on YouTube proper, uh, like YouTube default. Now, YouTube default YouTube Kids requires users to actually sign into a Google account and a parent to you know click yes. Uh, I am allowing my child to use this, um, and that's you know that's why they're compliant with COPPA. But we all know that YouTube proper doesn't actually require anyone to sign in at all. It just lets you watch videos that are on YouTube. So COPPA has an element where if you have actual knowledge that there is content that is directed towards children on your website and children are viewing your website, then you have to be in compliance with COPPA. You have to go through these, you know, these steps. Um, and because now the situation proves that Google knows that there is content directed towards children on regular YouTube and um, they know based on their massive analytics on their website Mm -hmm. that a huge percentage of YouTube regular viewers are under 12 children uh, viewing this content. And so for that reason, they have actual knowledge that minors are viewing this content on YouTube regular without going through the COPPA process. And so that that sounds like a violation of COPPA to me. All right. I just want to say it's (laughs) – that's you. You describe the situation far better than I did. Is that all off the top of your head? Yeah, that's very impressive. See, I I I've realized more and more that I just don't have the ability to articulately describe some of the stuff that I'm thinking in that way. <laughs> You're just uh, bouncing from one topic to the next. I don't know how I remember. I mean, I think that I was. Uh... That was very good. That was very. Excellent articulation oh, of, of the legal issues involved with Capo, what YouTube is doing, and what the actual problem is. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, don't ask me to talk about Carpenter. All <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Talk about- <laughs> so I, I feel like we need to have some sort of proper wrap-up, and it's unfortunate that Pinal isn't here to celebrate with us. But as we go dark for a period of time... Um, what are your plans for the summer? Or frankly, what are your plans for the duration of your, your time as a, as a Foundry Fellow? 
Man, I don't know. I'm super excited about the uh, onboarding of a new class of fellows. You know, it's it's such a bizarre experience. I'm at. Uh, I just want to give a little bit of like recap of what my year has been like. You know, when we started this show, I had just got my bar results back, but I was totally jobless, <laughs> um, and you know, had no idea what I was doing, and was just sort of throwing applications to the wind and doing this podcast in no small part because I was jobless and hoped that it would uh, improve those uh, possibilities. Um, but in that time, I found a position at Privacy Rights Clearinghouse doing some contract work, and then I was brought on as policy counsel. And now I've got my own desk in this amazing office here, and I've got some interns from my school, from my alma mater. Um, and you know, Your own these, minions. I know. I've got my own minions. It's very cool. Um, and some of these kids are just super smart. And yeah, I would love to see them uh, go through the application process and uh, you know, become Foundry Fellows as well. It's been you know, hugely helpful to me. Um, and yeah, that's, that's something I'm really excited about. So hopefully come fall, there will be some more information about onboarding the next class of fellows. Um, other than that, man, I'd love to get back to DC to try to do another foundry meetup and, uh, yeah, my, my summer is hopefully just going to be playing a bunch of D and D. Nice. Well, I guess I, I'll, I'll wrap up my thoughts by thanking you, um, for sort of leading the charge on this. I've multiple times in my life tried and failed to start a podcast. Um, I did a podcast series when I was at the American Constitution Society um, that just sort of sputtered by by virtue of the fact that it had to be approved by so many people. Mm. Um, then I then I started doing, just for my own, again, try to improve public speaking. Um, I would do like a weekly 15-minute privacy recap um, called Privacy State slash State of Privacy, uh, which I gave up on after about two months just because it's hard to do a podcast by yourself when you're actually having to do other work. That yeah. uh, I mean, that's really just what it boils down to. It's really hard to do things by yourself. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that I was really interested in with the Foundry was the ability to try and connect with other folks, but then also to a use this selfishly to improve my speaking abilities, but also just to work on communicating with folks and getting out stories in a digital form. And as a big podcast aficionado in my personal life, um, I, I wanted to do something with the group. And thank you for your leadership on this. Oh, and I, I mean, guess I'll also it's say totally been thank- a team effort, man. It is. It has been a lot. Of, it would not have been possible for me to do this by myself, and I wouldn't have wanted to. So, <laughs> so you say. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, I want to put out a huge uh, thank you to all of our listeners as well for sticking with us. Yep. I know that um, you know that our show is still very indie. Uh, so our listeners that we have, we, we hugely appreciate you. Yes, you, listener, right now, you. Thanks. We appreciate it. Um, if you guys have any criticism, any thoughts, any uh, – you know, if you like any of the discussion we had today and think that it should be the format for the show in the future, if you've got any radical ideas about what we should change – you know, let us know. We're huge. You know, we really, really, really would love to hear we, from you. We want criticism. Frankly, yeah. I would love for someone. We've certainly there's been people who have surprised me that were listening that come up and have really enjoyed the show. Um, but I would, I would love to have a critic come on and just yell at us for half an hour. Yeah, absolutely. We're lawyers. It's a challenge. <laughs> it's a gauntlet has been thrown. <laughs> this is what we do. You know, one of our favorite things is writing something and handing it to someone and having it handed back to us with red ink all over it. So, <laughs> yes, uh, yes. So yeah, if you've got Got some red ink to share? Please let us know. Uh, reach out to us on Twitter at Tech Policy Grind. Um, I'm personally at Emery Roan. Joe, I think you're at Joe Jerome, right? Or I am indeed. And uh, yeah, we'd love to hear from you. So with that, I think we're going to wrap up this kind of long, meandering discussion on privacy rights and 
tech policy grind in California and everything that we've been up to and say happy summer. Stay cool, everybody. Bye. This has been an episode of Tech Policy Grind, a podcast from the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. We're a collection of early career professionals paving the way in the tech policy world, and we really hope you enjoyed the show. If you like what you just heard, it would be a huge help and mean a lot to us if you could head over to iTunes and leave a rating and a review. If you don't have iTunes, maybe just share the show with a friend. You can follow us on Twitter at Tech Policy Grind and keep your ears peeled for new episodes twice a month on alternating Mondays. We want to thank Ali Sternberg for producing the intro and outro music for the show, and thank you all for listening. So, until next time, thanks.